This episode is sponsored by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Named the best podcast of 2018 by Apple. Tons of fascinating guests. Untold stories you won't hear anywhere else. Expand your wisdom and discover other perspectives that you've never considered before with The Jordan Harbinger Show. Join Jordan as he interviews high-profile people as well as intriguing personalities. Each episode features a discussion that might just take you anywhere. I recommend episode 970, where Jordan and guest Annie Jacobson talk nuclear annihilation. How likely is it? How scared should you be? And what comes after? There's also episode 886 with David Farina, which delves into the wacky world of flat earthers. These episodes are great starting points, but you're sure to find deep, interesting, and thought-provoking topics throughout Jordan's catalog. Turn off the music and turn up the wisdom with The Jordan Harbinger Show. We really enjoy this show and we think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com start for some episode recommendations or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Beware the Redwood Bureau, a secret organization which captures and researches creatures and objects that defy explanation. Their reckless procedures have led to countless innocent lives lost. I am Agent Conroy. I worked for the Redwood Bureau, but I have escaped them to leak their reports to the unsuspecting public. You have the right to know. Amazon Rainforest, an emerald expanse that breathes life into our world, a dizzying network of vibrant flora and elusive fauna. It's a place where sunlight struggles to touch the ground, where every leaf and every drop of water teems with life. Scientists estimate that in this verdant sprawl, a staggering 80% of the species remain undiscovered, shrouded in mystery. It's a natural repository of secrets, where every root and every branch may hold the key to untold wonders or nightmares. In the depths of this ancient wilderness, infections flourish from an unnerving diversity. Amongst them are fungi, those paradoxical organisms that straddle the line between life and death. Take, for example, Ophiocordyceps unilateralis, a parasitic fungus that commandeers the minds of ants, turning them into unwilling puppets. Or the Massospora, which infects cicadas, consuming them from within while leaving them disturbingly animated. These are no mere curiosities. They are the harbingers of nature's dark potential. They whisper a chilling truth, that life, as we understand it, is but a fragile veil over an abyss of unfathomable forces. I've been on the run for quite some time now, ever since I severed my ties with the Redwood Bureau. But the things I've seen... The secrets I've uncovered, they haunt me, following me like shadows clinging to my every step. You see, the Bureau doesn't just investigate the unknown. They meddle with it, twist it in a hubristic attempt to harness powers beyond their control. In my time with the Bureau, I've witnessed things. Things that would shake the very foundation of what everyday people consider reality. Once... Deep within the confines of an underground lab nestled in the Bureau's impenetrable facilities, I witnessed work on a project that still chills me to the bone. They called it the Arboreal Experiment. The aim was noble, or so they claimed, to explore the medicinal properties of exotic flora. But the means were an abomination. 
the researchers, driven by a blind fervor sanctioned by the Bureau, had taken to splicing genetic material from various organisms into the very DNA of trees. The results were grotesque mockeries of nature. Plants that bled, that seemed to breathe, that reacted to human presence with a disturbing awareness. It was a perversion of nature, a creation of an existence that was never supposed to occur. Those memories stick with me, not just for the horrors I witnessed, but for the realization of how thin the veil is between our world and the chaos we can unleash upon ourselves. The Redwood Bureau, with its insatiable thirst for knowledge and power, often crossed lines that are better left untouched. And when they do, the repercussions ripple outward, far beyond the confines of their hidden labs and classified files. As we unravel the threads of Redwood Bureau Phenomenon 4079, keep in mind the arrogance of those who believe they can control the uncontrollable. The Direfield Contagion, as it unfolded, serves as a harrowing testament to the consequences of ambition without caution. As we delve into Redwood Bureau Phenomenon 4079, remember this. The line between the known and the unknown is perilously thin. And sometimes, in our arrogance, we cross that line, unleashing forces that we cannot hope to contain. The Direfield Contagion, as it came to be known, is a stark reminder of the price we pay for our curiosity curiosity and for our recklessness. recklessness. Shifting from the emerald, insect-ridden world of the Amazon to America is a starch contrast. Trading the thick, heavy, humid air for pollution and car exhaust. A shimmering sunrise beset by buzzing flies fluttering above neon green flora. Now replaced by honking cars, the sounds of traffic, and interpersonal conflict in the distance. While the idyllic memory of the rainforest still blooms in my mind, the comforts of modern living are something I am quite thankful for. Being able to shower, have a soft bed, central air, food, and people to talk with makes the transition so much easier. Despite having found the very location I had sought, a grouping of ruins depicting an unrecorded language, I returned mostly empty-handed. Within the stone walls was... nothing. I managed to jot down much of the text I had found, creating a reasonable facsimile of its complexity. There were no jars or jugs, no pottery or paintings, nothing of real tangible value. However, what little text I found repeated. With less than eight letters in the records, it's hard to say whether or not my findings will be recognized. The photographs are most certainly of value, especially due to one single significant find. A massive, subterranean arboretum. Held just beneath the group of ruins, its gaping hole in the ceiling, which allows air and sunlight in, was almost entirely veiled by the jade brush. Growing within, were trees not native to Brazil, which is astonishing. They had a birch-like residue, which piled on the bark surface in a dusty skin. A ringing, buzzing sound echoed through the room, and a multitude of massive insects could be seen swarming the canopy. Enormous beetles, horseflies, and a familiarly terrifying drumming sound emanating from its most terrible residence. Hurling its massive body upwards was the impending form of tarantula hawk. So big, it rivaled birds for dominance of the air. Such things encouraged my hasty retreat, but not before I snapped a few pictures and gathered a few samples. While they may have seemed impressive at first glance, these findings may not be all that dramatic. They were likely creatures that are already present in the surrounding rainforest. With pictures and a sample of tree bark in hand, I made my trek back, boarded the plane, and left for home. Beside me now are the clouds, a vivid skyline which bursts with blue just beyond the small window. As I return, I find myself reminiscing on my time spent there, 
How many hours were spent looking at indentations on stones, assuming them to have meaning? The minuscule alphabet is something I wish to expand on. Perhaps I've made an error in my interpretations. What writing I did find was primarily in big print. Along the walls of the Arboretum, I found the exact same text that I found before, word for word. It was repeated along the circumference of its circular room, and the walls were a rather smooth limestone, insinuating that perhaps it was designed to be inscribed upon. Why repeat your words unless to send a message? Maybe these trees are extinct in the modern world, with the only remaining ones being inside this unassuming ruin in the middle of the rainforest. I won't know until the results get back from the lab. The plane gradually readies for landing, slowing significantly and lurching our lungs forwards as it dampens velocity. The wheels touch and I prepare myself for headaches. We exited the plane to find a checkpoint, where they asked to see our paperwork. Some people don't have theirs. I've been in that situation myself, but it makes this delay so much longer. Despite looking at your paperwork before you enter the plane, they still check after you get off. I approached the customs officer after an admittedly short wait, papers in hand featuring the requisite stamps of approval. Vaccines, IDs, passport. After giving me another stamp, I left for the busy airport. The deafening murmur of hundreds of voices mashed together, as if I was trapped within the tilted walls of the Denver airport, which drew a mild amount of anxiety from me. Similarly was the feeling of relief, of being back in society where I can be found. A significant portion of this cacophony was formed by the sprawling food court. Colors splashed along the walls, as small-scale stores of famous fast food chains served their food to hungry customers lashing their dollars at them. I settle in at a table, peering around the court in search of a meal, as well as my ride home. I await my wife and her sister, neither of whom have ever left the country, yet they love hearing about my travels. A thunderous noise of voices, waving in volume and veracity, with crests and valleys that tickled my nerves. As volume increases, so do my muscles in tension. Perhaps Amazonia, with its own dominating ambience of insect life and floral motion, was simply calmer. Perhaps it's being indoors, especially with the unique roofing of Denver International Airport. At the shriek of a small boy, I jump, looking over to see him simply resisting a meal. Taking a deep breath, a sharp scent catches my nose. Spice mixed with sweet flavor that punches my empty stomach. I leave my stuff and fetch some food, realizing that this may be the cause of my unease. As I sit down with the warm meal, I relax. Cooking on an open fire with only what you can catch can be exhausting. One of the many splendors of modern living is the ease with which we can acquire a filling, tasty meal. I consumed a burrito filled with beef, peppers, and rice. A far cry from Arapaima, but delicious indeed. As I finished up, I could see my wife on the horizon. Her eyes combed the cafeteria in search of me, to which I waved her over. We embraced one another and began walking out. At the baggage claim, she began her questioning. What was it like? Where were the ruins? What did you find? The usual stuff. I answered what I could as my bag came rolling around the carousel, distracted by various things. My responses were mostly single words or sentences. She asked if I'm alright, to which I replied, I'm just tired. The stuffy air and claustrophobic sounds of the airport washed away the moment we got outside. Wind blowing against the deep blue sky, brilliant orange lights flicker against the backdrop, illuminating the road on which my chariot awaits. The door opens and I crouch inside, hearing the warm voice of my wife as we sit down. How are you feeling? she asks. I'm doing fine, I answered. Did you find anything big? she probes. A few bugs, a bunch of trees in a room, but not much text, I replied, looking down at my book. 
Oh, well, if I know you, that language will be discovered. It'll just take some time. At least you have the first sight, she proclaims in an effort to boost my morale. Oh, I know, Kim. It's just taking forever. I feel like I've been chasing a ghost, I admit. You'll catch it. It's not a ghost. You've gotten this close. The truth is that I felt like I had seen a ghost, and with no real explanation as to why. My stomach was slightly queasy. I felt unnerved being in the car, which was thankfully relieved the moment I opened the window. Feeling the wind flush by my hand between my fingers as the air fills my lungs with cold. Every breath was discouraged by a tingling fire in my stomach and my hands were feeling clammy. Brought on by the plane ride most assuredly, I rested my body and mind falling asleep where I sat. When I awoke, I felt much better. The stomach churning went away, and the fireflies in my chest had finally abated. The warm lights of our suburban home, and the evident plethora of cars that had parked outside, people who had come to see me, were a welcome sight. Beyond the door, I heard talking, pleasantries. Before entering, my wife stops me and steals a kiss. Absolute bliss beset by the moonlight in a quiet concert of crickets. As the moment passes, we open the door, going inside to see our families. I walked up, hugged my mother-in-law, and shook my father-in-law's hand. A few friends had appeared, constituents interested in not only my well-being, but my findings. They peered through my pictures and journal entries, discussing things and identifying what they could. To their knowledge, and with what minimal pictures I had of it, they deduced that a fair number of the insects I found were indeed normal occurrences. They argued against the tarantula hawk, speculating that it's a little large. Some were geographic researchers, others entomologists, but none of whom were arborists. While discussing with them, we ate a small meal, chatting with my wife and family about my experiences. We closed out the night with champagne, a few handshakes, and a mild celebration of my return. That night, I woke up supremely early. Suffering from jet lag, I got out of bed and stumbled into the bathroom at 2 a.m. in need of its facilities. Afterwards, I felt a striking itch on my leg, which I immediately investigated to find just a rash. The skin was dry and peeling. Perhaps I'd picked up an infection somewhere in the vast jungle. I rubbed some ointment on it and left. In the dark of my own home, I walked around, feeling strangely lost. The lack of noise bothered me, so much so that I turned on a fan, just to have some kind of audio. It felt like there was a void in my skull that needed to be refilled. The sound did just that, relieving my discomfort in a strange way. With the fan on, I turned back to my bedroom, each creak of my footsteps feeling like gunshots to my ears. A certain wobble to my step and a fishbowl sensation in my head hinted that I may be sick. An unsurprising turn of events, given that the vaccinations required are mostly for lethal diseases. I lay in bed beside Kim and gradually fell back asleep. In the brilliant light of the morning, I found myself alone in bed. The sounds of pots and pans and dishes in the background. The powerful smell of bacon hung thick in the air. Crackling oil and eggs flooded my ears, making it oddly difficult to get up. Not helping was a potent pain rocketing through my limbs. Down to the bone, lightning shot into the marrow, striking at the joints whenever I so much as thought about moving. Compounding these pains is a dry, stale feeling to my skin. At the creases, many folds can be seen. I look oddly leathery all up and down my body. When I scratched, the itching got worse, turning into a burning sensation rapidly as flakes of dermis piled in bed. I did my very best to rise and clean up my bed sheets, but every time I wiped the flakes away, more would fall off. Instead of entertaining the futile task, suffering with every sweeping motion, I just went to the bathroom to get my day started. 
My face startled me, looking staunch, dry, pale. So much as a light brush across my cheeks caused scales of skin to fall off and peel like paper. In response, I gently exfoliated my face using a warm washcloth and scrubbing only softly. Even then, my skin was red by the end, feeling sore and supple, muscles twitching in response to hidden scores of pain. I left the bathroom a little frustrated, but having a home-cooked meal made by my loving wife would likely turn things around. Sitting at the table, my wife greeted me good morning and brought me a plate, but nearly dropped it in astonishment. She looked shocked, horrified by my appearance. Holy shit, are you alright, Mark? She asked in a mild panic. It's probably just a skin infection. The Amazon has more viruses and fungi than our city has people. Likely caught it by bathing in a river, I postulated, trying to assuage her concerns and failing to do so. You need to go to the hospital. They'll get you antibiotic cream, she insisted. No, it's alright. I, I just need to stay home for a few days. I'm sure it's nothing, I resisted. With a hefty dose of caution, she continued about her morning. Throughout the day, I felt queasy. My skin was taut and sensitive. While cleaning the pans used for breakfast, Kim accidentally dropped one and it landed with such a noise that I leapt from the table. My ears were ringing afterwards. I felt rather panicked and Kim insisted I went back to bed. Laying down wasn't a great solution as my joints locked up while my muscles grew sore. I felt the need to move, but my body was incapable. Again, a dose of frustration overcame me. I wanted to deliver some samples today, but the task seemed increasingly impossible. With Kim's family returning today for another visit, I'd want to get these things out of the way so I can spend time with them, sick or not. So I grabbed my phone, calling a colleague specializing in aboriculture, and told him of my findings. Mentioning my illness, beckoning him over to see my results. He said he'd be over soon, and we hung up. I looked around for the most disposable of our blankets to wrap myself in as I waited. I also took the liberty of calling over a few more researchers, just so I could get my findings into the right hands before a possible months-long recovery process. They appeared around noon and I approached them with due diligence and caution, wearing a mask and wrapping my body in the aforementioned blanket. We sat at the dining room table, going over things while I avoided much physical contact. Over the steam of tea, we talked, watching as the day passed by. What are you sick with? A friend asks. Just some skin irritation, likely due to something from the rainforest. It could just be my eczema acting up, I responded. Was there anything to learn from the scriptures around the area? No, not really. There was an arboretum with some unique trees and large insects. But beyond that, I can't think of anything more. Nothing to indicate significance, I recall. Birch-like trees do exist in Brazil, but nothing that looks like this, our arborist informs. The greatest question is why? Why would they create a whole place just to grow these things? Maybe that's all the text is? I pondered. Just a warning that there's a rare type of tree growing here? We shrugged our shoulders and thought over it more. From memory, the place seems hazy but idyllic. Yet I know if I check my notes, it'll remind me of a hellish experience. Frothy pools of water filled with microbial life, aggressive insects, and the occasional panther. Our discussion continued for quite a bit. I gave them what I could, and without a handshake, I bid them goodbye. As I lurched around the house for the remainder of the day, my mind grew foggy. I could still think, but struggled to hold onto concepts. I traipsed about until I found the kitchen, chugging down some water with great effort before returning to bed. The sun had set, and in the dark I struggled to sleep. Tossing and turning, my joints ached and my muscles screamed. I was layered in a thick sweat. Cramps crept up the back of my skull all the way down my spine, and breathing was becoming straining. 
At this point, I stopped and held still momentarily, realizing that something was missing. I stretched my arm out, the skin scrunching painfully on top of the shoulder as it yanked in lines down my chest. Reaching full extension, my hand feels as though it's filling a tight glove. It was there I felt the cold sheets on the other side of my bed. Kim wasn't there. I motioned to get up, crackling and popping, resonating in bursts from my bones. Something was seriously wrong. I tried to yell, but my voice was obstructed by phlegm. Only a faint gurgle emitted as I fell out of bed. Landing with a thud and a yelp, my side seethes in agony as the skin sticks to the floor and peels off me. I rose with an incendiary feeling dancing across my right arm, looking down to see half of the cocoon that was my skin lying limply as the edges folded in on itself. Above the portion left of my arm was a pile of flakes. Upon seeing the massive skin, the right side of my face started itching worse than imaginable. I stumbled down the hall. Kim! I yelled. Kim! My steps were clumsy and unsteady. I searched, only finding her at the sound of retching in the bathroom. The door was closed. Kim, are you alright? I shouted, banging on the door. Yeah, her limp voice responded weakly between heaves. We need to go to the hospital. My skin is so hard I can barely move. Please just open the door. We'll go now. She likely couldn't hear me as she resumed vomiting. I banged on the door for a moment before wobbling over to get my phone. I dialed 911 and tried to inform them. Meanwhile, the heaves coming from the bathroom got louder and more visceral. Burps and gurgles sounded between them twisting my stomach as I tried to explain things. We might be dealing with a rare disease at my house. I live at 4210 Dyerfield Lane. Please get a dispatch down here as soon as you can, I pleaded. Warning, signal interruption detected. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. What is horror to you? Monsters? Murder? Mystery? Well, if human monsters are your thing, June's Journey is the game for you, albeit in a more light-hearted tone. June's Journey is a hidden object game with a thrilling murder mystery set in the Roaring Twenties. You play as June on the hunt for your sister's murderer. Discover clues through exciting hidden object scenes with beautiful and atmospheric illustrations and music. Victory brings you closer to new plot points and suspenseful answers. When not hunting for clues, you can customize your own luxurious estate island with gardens, buildings, and decor. Or chat and play with or against other players too, in the Detective Club, where you could even put your skills to the test in the Detective League. June's journey is both relaxing and fun to play. With my busy schedule, I find it's the perfect game to pick up and play whenever I've got a free moment. It doesn't demand too much time, and it's pretty satisfying solving puzzles quickly and unlocking new clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Signal connection restored. 
We return to you now with new information regarding a local household now put under the strictest quarantine we've ever seen. A tent has been placed around its perimeter, and supplies are being brought to those inside. Currently, two people are suspected to be carrying a rare disease thought to be brought in from the Amazon jungle. We go to 4210 Dyerfield Lane, where our on-the-scene reporter, John Littinger, is standing by. Thank you, John. Thank you, Rachel. We're outside the tent now. I'm not allowed any closer to the premises, and neither are the pedestrians who came out to see the spectacle. No information has been given as to what disease we are dealing with here. The few people we have spoken to claim it's simply a flu-like virus that the husband, Mark Reynolds, is rumored to have acquired from his recent trip to the Amazon jungle in Brazil. For now, the situation seems to be contained, and things are looking to progress in a stable manner from outside the building. As we're seeing now, a team of people in full hazmat suits are entering the tent. We'll have more information for you as soon as they come out and update us. Reporting to you live at 13 o'clock news, I'm John Littinger. When I first arrived on the scene, the atmosphere was already tense. Police vehicles formed a perimeter around the Reynolds residence punctuated by yellow tape. Spinning red and blue lights sliced through the falling dusk. Behind the barricade, a crowd had gathered. Reporters lined up with lights and microphones, their cameras trained on the opaque containment shell that loomed over the two-story house. It looked like a behemoth, an aberration that had no right existing in the sleepy suburban setting. I took a moment, sitting there within the disguised vehicle, then at the chaos unfolding. The Bureau had given us cutting-edge equipment, but we would still have much lighter weaponry than I felt comfortable with. Going loud was out of the question in this situation. My team waited, their faces a mix of determination and apprehension. Listen up, I told them, my eyes scanning each face. We're stepping into unknown territory. Intel on this is nearly zero. Whatever's in there isn't Mark Reynolds anymore. It's a threat to everyone and everything. Understood? A chorus of yes sir met my ears. Good agents, trained for hell but living on Earth. We exited the CDC van in full white hazmat suits that not only obscured our identity, but afforded credence to our disguise. We walked wordlessly past the swarm of reporters all shouting questions and headed toward the antechamber that served as our covert entry point, hidden from the prying eyes of the media circus. Inside, the staging area was a stark contrast to the chaos outside. It was methodical, precise. Weapons were within locked cases awaiting our biometric scan on the table. Revolutionary suppressed weaponry specially designed by Bureau scientists sat next to rows of proprietary ammunition. This setup makes hardly more noise than a tisk when firing, but I prefer power over stealth any day. Masks designed to filter out biological and chemical agents lay next to state-of-the-art Kevlar vests. I picked up one of the custom-built handguns, testing its weight. It wasn't my first choice, but damn if the Bureau doesn't make quality weapons. Gear up, I commanded. The room hummed to life as my agents donned their equipment. I watched as they checked and double-checked their gear. In minutes, we were ready. Once we go through that airlock, I said, pointing to the sealed door that led into the house. There's no turning back. We sweep, we identify, and likely when the need arises, we neutralize. Stay sharp. We stepped through the airlock, and the atmosphere changed instantly. The moment we crossed that threshold, it felt like stepping into another world. You could just tell something wasn't right. Dense, suffocating air gripped us, it was more than just humidity. It was the very essence of foreboding. The atmosphere was thick, as if resisting our intrusion. The dim lighting was a result of most of the bulbs broken out, which brought our attention to the strange holes in the walls and ceiling. What wasn't broken illuminated just enough to accentuate the shadows that danced and swayed across the walls with our movement. We all flicked our rifles' lights to the on position the bright beams making the scene all the more alien. My boots met the wooden floor of the living room, but
but the house seemed to absorb the sound, muting it into a subdued thud. The home was a picture of an ordinary suburban life torn apart, family photos hanging sideways on the cracked and hole-filled walls, the coffee table splintered apart among a bed of broken glass, and a thin layer of powder seemed to have settled over everything. We sweep every room, I commanded, my voice hushed but clear. Roberts, Jensen, you're on the ground floor. Sanders, Harper, you're with me. We're taking the second. As Roberts and Jensen moved to clear the kitchen and the adjoining rooms, the rest of us approached the staircase. Every step was calculated, measured. Reaching the landing of the second floor, the noise we'd started hearing as a faint skittering grew louder, more pronounced. It echoed through the hallways, a jarring mess of clicks and scrapes that seemed to come from multiple directions at once. Post up at the stairs, I ordered, nodding to Harper who took position, his rifle aimed at the narrow staircase we'd just ascended. Sanders moved to the opposite end of the hallway, securing our rear. The layout was typical, two rooms and a master bedroom. We started with the smaller rooms, clearing them in a matter of seconds. The computer room with its spare bed neatly made, but signs of struggle were very evident. A shattered vase here, overturned furniture there. Something had moved through the home like a whirlwind of chaos and dread. We reached the door of the master bedroom, the epicenter of the disturbance. I signaled for Sanders to take point. With a swift, practiced kick, the door burst open and we were immediately set upon by a monstrous figure that defied natural biology. It was humanoid with elements of a spider and a scorpion, but its size and shape were truly horrific. Long, spindly legs that ended in razor-sharp talons embedded into the wall where it clung in the corner. Lightning fast, it ran up the wall and onto the ceiling towards us. Contact! Engage! I shouted, my voice cutting through the initial shock. Sanders immediately squeezed off a burst from his suppressed submachine gun, but the creature moved with incredible speed, taking only a few bullets while the rest passed through the ceiling. It launched from the ceiling toward Sanders, its pedipalp unfurrowing into a long, dangerous appendage that slashed forward in a blur of movement, slicing across his chest and sending him sprawling back into the hallway. Sanders is down! Everyone on me now! I commanded. Harper was there in the next instant and we opened fire, our weapon muzzles flashing in the dim light creating a strobing effect as the creature hissed and reared back. The sound vibrated through the air like nails on a chalkboard before the thing retreated back into the room. Don't let it break containment, I shouted, reloading with a speed born from years in the field. The creature snarled, its mandibles clicking in what I imagined was frustration, or maybe even pain. It lunged forward again, but this time it moved erratically, zigzagging across the room, making it difficult to even follow its movements. In a brief moment, our eyes locked, clusters of tiny, glistening orbs focus intently on me. Within those eyes was an intelligence and evil. I could feel its need to hunt and kill. Then, in a blur of movement, it charged. Concentrate fire! Aim for the eyes! I yelled, squeezing the trigger and feeling the gun kick back against my shoulder. Harper and I fired in controlled bursts, our bullets finding their mark more often than not. The creature shrieked, a sound so jarring it felt like it could shatter glass. But it kept coming, its long arms tearing lines across the room where we were only moments before rolling away. Harper, prep the net, I barked, providing cover fire to stall the creature's advance. It screeched and tried to take my head off while I ducked and backstepped, my rifle spraying lead with a quiet hiss before running dry. I released the magazine, my hand fitting in a fresh one before the empty even hit the floor. With deft hands, Harper slid the dinner plate-sized metal disc under the creature and activated the remote. The steel net exploded open, wrapping around it. The motor wound pulling the net increasingly tighter. The creature thrashed wildly, but the more it moved, the tighter the net became, its barbed edges cutting into its exoskeleton. Roberts and Jensen joined us by this time. Finish it, 
I roared, and we all emptied our magazines into the trapped abomination until it stopped moving completely. Panting, Harper and I kept our weapons trained on the now still chitinous tangle of limbs, half expecting it to rise again like some horror movie cliché. But it didn't stir. The room was filled with the smell of something burnt and organic. A scent that would probably haunt my dreams for years to come after I found out what it was. Check on Sanders. I'll secure this thing, I ordered, still not entirely convinced it was down for good. Harper nodded, rushing to Sanders's side. He's still breathing, but something is wrong with him. Damn it, I muttered under my breath. If there's one thing I've learned over the years dealing with unknown entities, mysterious afflictions are never a good sign. We need to finish what we came here for, get medical here on the double, do another sweep, and then get the hazmat team in here for cleanup and body removal. Make sure they're prepped for biohazard protocols. We still don't know if this thing is infectious. Harper coordinated with the Bureau over our secure line, as I had Jensen and Roberts move Sanders into the antechamber. Within minutes, Medivac arrived and prepped Sanders for transport. How they got him out without raising suspicions of the onlooking crowd is another matter entirely. While they worked, I scoured the master room for any evidence of how far this infection had spread. The walls leading to the closet were covered in what looked like fungal spores, a sickly yellow-green substance that seemed to throb in the dim light. I approached the closet door, sliding it open with the barrel of my rifle, ready for something to pop out at me. What I saw was much worse than another one of those things. I'm assuming what was Mark's wife was placed within, knelt in a hunched-over position looking directly at me. Her skin was covered in these hard grayish fungal growths like a disturbing statue. Her right arm had been chewed off, leaving behind a red stump that had surprisingly not bled as much as it should have. But it was when I met her eyes that the true horror of her situation dawned on me. They moved as tears streamed down her face. Even in this state, she was somehow still alive and seemingly conscious. Fuck! Harper, radio back and tell him there's another body for extraction upstairs. Let's get the fuck out of here. I ordered, turning away from the living nightmare that had transpired in that room and walking back down the stairs. Leaving through the antechamber, Medivac had pulled up a CDC medical truck right to the door. We exited directly into the vehicle and were a sight unseen. The trip back to forward base was quiet as Sanders lay unconscious, strapped within a dome-enclosed bed. At any point, that could be any one of us, and none of us were confident he'd make it out of this okay. As I sat down to draft my after-action report, my eyes fell on the two sealed containment units holding what remained of the creature, and the other containing his still-living wife. A shiver went down my spine. He'd spent a lot of time out and about before we contained him. How far had this thing spread already? It's a chilling thought. And one that drives me to write my recommendations for increased tracking of all previous interactions with the subject, further research into the contagion, and more boots on the ground before this thing gets out of hand. But for now, all that replays in my mind are the eyes of the creature, those tiny, glistening orbs boring into me and the dark abyss they held. An abyss that seemed to say, this is just the beginning. The TV flicks off and I breathe a subtle sigh. <sighs> Poor Mark. His sample arrived at my lab this morning, hours before I heard the news. I couldn't attend his return party due to my own complications but I was given the sample in a wrapped package. Unwrapping it, I found a tube of rolled up bark taken from one of the trees in an ancient arboretum he visited. Some see it as not important, but Mark understands the importance of arbor studies. I figured a full analysis of what this tree might have been would be a lovely gift for him once this is all over. Like birch, it has a dusty residue on its surface which is far more voluminous than birch residue. Its clumpy, massive particles have a slightly yellowish tint to them. Birch residue is known to have some helpful properties, 
providing a mild anesthetic for deer during birth. Despite the bark of birch being well known, there is something rather peculiar about this sample, with its underside showing vastly different lenticels than its kin. Rather than being horizontal or vertical, they are sprawling. They slither along in strange patterns that skew and sway, looking not dissimilar to veins. When prodded, these lenticels come out in a powder of microbial life, the top side of which is the familiar yellowish tint, while their undersides are a pronounced, saturated brown. This shares similarities with Inonatus obliquus, a parasitic fungus that is known to infest birch trees. Yet the pictures did not depict them in any unhealthy state. They seemed fine. Whatever has infected them might be a parasite of different quality, one which keeps the host alive despite chewing away at its form, normally announcing itself in the form of disfigured baubles that protrude from the tree's surface, usually a wound channel, and processing some melanin which makes its surface darker. This is an interesting case, and after some lab analysis, I'll have some answers as to what resides within this bark, and if the tree was indeed healthy. However, our sample is a 2 by one inch rectangle that was rolled up for storage in a plastic tube. This could have affected our findings. For now, my interest lies within the powder, the botulin which the trees produce. This is commonly used to help with epidermolysis bullosa, an inherited disease which makes the skin fragile and easy to infect. This too must be sent off for testing, which will hopefully point the way towards what's occurring here. Perhaps the infection and possible integration of this parasite might have led to its microbial colonies adapting in response. Of course, this speculation won't aid me much once they're out of my hands. I sent the samples off to the lab down the hall and packed my things to leave. I work in a place specializing in naturally occurring chemical agents and their properties. As head of the Aboriculture Division, birch trees are of utmost interest to me. They're plentiful and have many uses to help humans. I believe them to be a bountiful healing resource. A lofty goal, but one I'll likely not see the fruits of. I open my car door and toss my things in stepping inside and turning on the radio. As I drove off in the moonlight, my thoughts shifted from work to personal matters, and I worried about Mark Reynolds, as well as his wife. Mark worked very hard to get these samples for me, and the man is dedicated to finding this foreign alphabet. For now, my stomach growls, and I seek some satiation. I pulled up to a fast food restaurant and order a burger with fries. After scarfing it down, I still felt quite hungry, so I went back inside on foot to order some more. Even with the second meal down, I was starving, but I was craving something else. I started looking around for other fast food restaurants. Down the road, I found another. Eagerly, I waited my turn in line. I ordered more food and nearly inhaled it, finally feeling full, but overwhelmingly so. I began my drive back home when something on the radio catches my attention. A news network describing what's happening to my colleague Mark. I turned it off as butterflies rose in my chest. The thought of being infected with that awful disease was enough to turn my stomach. However, as I pulled into my driveway and got out of my car, I began to feel very sick. Maybe it was just the anxiety of the day, or perhaps the news getting to my head, or maybe the three meals of poor quality I took down on the way home. I felt calm, surreal in a sense where my feet felt lighter than air, but my head was spinning. 
and thoughts were spiraling. Once in bed, I finally got a slight sense of relief. The pressure of my insides still nipped at my body, but laying down and taking a deep breath felt like all that I needed. This relief was undercut, sadly, by a gurgling in my body. I got up to grab a trash can and put it beside my bed. Within minutes, I was crouched over it, hovering my head aloft while an acidic boil began building in my throat. wake of Redwood Bureau Phenomenon 4079, a shroud of uncertainty lingers like a dense fog over Dyerfield. The harrowing narrative recounted by field agent Walker Sykes paints a vivid picture of the chaos and desperation that unfolded behind closed doors, a stark contrast to the Bureau's narrative of control and containment. Yet the echoes of the Dyerfield contagion reverberate far beyond the quarantine zone casting long shadows over the surrounding areas. Reports, unsettling in their consistency, speak of an outpouring of unexplained disappearances within several five-mile radiuses within Dyerfield. Men, women, children, vanishing into the ether, leaving behind empty rooms and unanswered questions. Could it be that the contagion has spread its tendrils, unseen and undetected, into the community? The mere thought sends ripples of dread through those who've dared to look beyond the Bureau's veil of secrecy. Whispers circulate among the locals, tales of strange sightings in the woods, of eerie sounds that pierce the stillness of the night. The Bureau maintains its stance. The situation is under control. But for those who have witnessed the Bureau's machinations, trust is a currency long since devalued. The aftermath of the Dyerfield incident is a tapestry of frayed lives and unspoken fears. The Reynolds family, once pillars of the community, now reduced to a cautionary tale. As always, brave agents who ventured into the unknown and paid the ultimate price are relegated to mere footnotes in the Bureau's classified files. The residents of Dyerfield, left to grapple with an unseen threat too terrifying to comprehend and too dangerous to resolve. As I sit here, surrounded by the scattered remnants of Redwood Bureau files, I am haunted by the cost of human curiosity and hubris. Redwood Bureau Phenomenon 4079 is not merely a case file. It is a stark reminder of the delicate balance we maintain with the unknown. A reminder that the veil separating us from the unfathomable is thinner than we dare to admit to ourselves. And so, as we peer into the abyss... We must remain vigilant, ever mindful that the abyss is indeed peering back. For in the realm of the Redwood Bureau, the line between the known and the unknowable is a perilous razor's edge. And the next phenomenon, with all its dark mysteries and death, is always, is just, always a just a whisper away. Just a whisper away.